Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We have a mutual friend, of course, Peter Bogdanovich. That's right. Yes. As a matter of fact, you have me to thank for the fact that you were asked to be in the picture which was probably the least successful of any in your past. That's Orson Welles and Burt Reynolds on The Tonight Show back in 1978, the most popular late-night talk show of all time, regularly seen in more than 7 million homes. Reynolds was a guest host, sitting in for Johnny Carson. Reynolds had been in Peter's last two movies, both flops. My feeling was that the picture needed you. Yeah. No, it it needed a lot more. (laughs) Burt Reynolds was really famous at this point. 1978 was the first of five consecutive years when he was the most bankable movie star in the country. Orson, of course, was a famous director and actor and one of Peter's closest friends. Bert's jokes Peter could handle. The jokes from Orson devastated him. Yeah, they said some unpleasant things about me. Yeah, I was watching. I sent Orson a note the next day saying I was watching. I tuned in to see how you guys were doing. I guess I found out. Or something like that. Peter is telling me this story late last summer. 41 years had passed, and it's still hard for him, remembering how he felt when his friend, arguably the man he admired most, made fun of him, mocked him even, on national television. I had the distinction of getting him on this show and having him host this show. How did you get him off? Well, that was the thing. By now, I know Peter well enough to recognize the difference between his rehearsed stories, the ones he's told over and over in interviews, and the stuff he hardly ever talks about, the stuff he doesn't want to talk about. Peter doesn't do impersonations in those moments. He becomes a reluctant storyteller. A few days after that Tonight Show episode aired, Orson got in touch with Peter. An envelope arrived with two letters in it. One long one saying that, uh, uh, apologizing, saying it was a betrayal of friendship and he didn't think it was the right thing. He's very sorry that he did that and so on. And then the other was a shorter note saying you deserved it. And he wrote, take your pick. That was very Orson. You say that's very Orson. I say that's incredibly fucked up. (laughs) I think Orson didn't know what to say. I don't think he wanted to attack me. It just sort of happened. Of course, no one can say for sure why Orson made that joke at his friend's expense. Peter thinks Orson was mad at him because of a movie, a movie Peter ended up making, a movie Sybil Shepard helped him get. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This is Episode 5, Bogdanovich, The Misunderstood. 
Peter had just made three consecutive flops, two of them with Sybil Shepard. Now, instead of being the it couple, Hollywood had turned on them. It was 1978, and Peter hadn't made a film in two years. He needed a movie, and he needed it to be good. That movie eventually came through a series of events that could only happen in Hollywood, and it began with Peter's first hit. The Last Picture Show, nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. In a strange way, The Last Picture Show caused Peter's life to intersect with a glossy symbol of the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. Playboy magazine. In recent years, there's been a cultural reckoning when it comes to Playboy. But back then, Playboy was almost mainstream. Wait till the brothers see this month's Playboy. The September Playboy at newsstands now. Playboy has always been a magazine featuring photos of naked women. By the 1970s, it had upwards of 7 million subscribers. And during the sexual revolution, it became more than just a magazine. It was a lifestyle and an empire presided over by one man. My name is Hugh Hefner. I'm 35 years of age, and I'm editor-publisher of Playboy magazine. Mr. Hefner's magazine is most widely known for its total exposure of the human female. A code of relaxed sexual conduct which fit a hip generation. Hugh Hefner, or Hef, bought a mansion in Los Angeles in 1971. He then made it something more than an expensive home. Put in a setting with the pool and the rock and the waterfalls. And Playboy the, Mansion and quickly hills. became ground zero for the hedonistic lifestyle Hefner was peddling. Hugh Hefner invites you to Playboy's rubber disco and pajama party. His parties were legendary. The women in his magazines would attend, and so would celebrities. Some were regulars. Jack Nicholson, James Caan, Bill Cosby. So what does this all have to do with The Last Picture Show? Well, Playboy had gotten hold of a 35-millimeter print of the film. Which was easy to get because they said they were running at the management. And somebody clipped out four or five frames from the picture which, in which Sybil was naked, and nude, partially. Hey, look, new victims! There is a short scene in The Last Picture Show where J.C., that's Sybil's character, comes to a pool party and is surprised to find everyone swimming naked. You want to join the club? Sure. Well, you got to get undressed out there on the diving board. So everybody gets to watch. Sybil strips down and joins them in the pool. And that's how Playboy got its pictures. And uh, they used it in the magazine. Well, this was, this was a very bad situation. Sybil was very upset because I had told her it would never happen. But it didn't happen from anybody who'd taken pictures on the set. It was some frame enlargement, as I said, which is really below the belt. Playboy published the shots of Sybil in its November 1972 issue. Maybe it's a coincidence, but that issue became Playboy's best-selling magazine ever. Sybil sued Playboy for $9 million. Playboy fought it, and the lawsuit dragged on. All of this was going on while Orson was living at Peter's house. Orson had just read St. Jack, a novel by Paul Thoreau. It's about an American pimp in Singapore who dreams of opening his own brothel, getting rich, and then going back to America to retire. Orson liked the book and thought it would make a great movie. I said, do you want to make it? He said, I think it'd be a good picture. 
I said, well, let me find out who owns it. Turns out Playboy owned it. So Orson says, when I told him, I said, why don't you settle your lawsuit and get the rights? Well, I had to ask Sybil what she wanted to do, and Sybil said, all right. Sybil settled her lawsuit with Playboy. She got half the rights to St. Jack. Playboy also agreed to produce the film along with Sybil and Peter. Orson would write and direct. But Orson being Orson, he dragged his feet, couldn't make up his mind about who should play the lead. Finally, Hefner and uh, Sybil said to me, we don't think Orson's going to ever get around to this. We want you to direct it. Well, I couldn't say no because Sybil had given up her lawsuit and Orson wasn't taking that into consideration. And so I did the picture, which kind of fucked up my relationship with Orson for a few years. The jokes that Orson made on The Tonight Show didn't help their relationship either. But the real test of their friendship came two years later, during Peter's worst moment. Orson would fail, miserably. Peter has always believed the reason he made three consecutive flops was because he compromised. When he wanted to shoot in black and white again, the studio wouldn't let him. When he wanted to cast Sybil again, the studio wouldn't let him. And he didn't always get the leading men he wanted either. For St. Jack, Peter decided not to compromise. He and Sybil were now in business with Playboy, but they needed studio money to make the film. They took St. Jack to Paramount. They said... We'll do it with Paul Newman or Warren Beatty. I said, no, no, I want Ben Gazzara. And, uh, and nobody would do it with Ben. Ben Gazzara was a big Broadway star in the mid-50s. In the 70s, he starred in some of the most important independent movies of the era. Gazzara, Falk, Cassavetes, Husbands. Experimental films of a Chinese bookie starring financed without a big studio. Peter had admired Gazzara since seeing him on Broadway. Maggie. A hot tin roof, an uncomfortable place to stay on. He knew in his gut Ben was right for Jack Flowers, the lead character in St. Jack. In the film, Jack Flowers is a pimp, but he's likable, charming, friendly, and loyal. Oh, me, I just want a yacht, big mansion. He has a strong moral center, a tough guy who doesn't take himself too seriously. Peter was willing to walk away from Paramount and all its money to cast Ben. Leaving the studio also meant Peter took a huge pay cut. Instead of getting more than a million bucks to direct, he'd get about $50,000. Peter went to Roger Corman, the Hollywood producer who had given him his first big break. Roger loved the idea and agreed to finance it. Sybil wrote a first draft of the screenplay. Then she and Peter took off on a tour of Asia to scout locations. Roger wanted Peter to shoot in the Philippines instead of Singapore, because it was cheaper. He said, I have a deal there. We went to Manila. Didn't look like Singapore. We went to Tokyo. Didn't look like Singapore. No place looked like Singapore except Singapore. <laughs> so we had to shoot it there. Peter arrived in Singapore and was soon joined by Ben Gazzara and his old friend George Morfogan, who was producing. And they all gathered together like, a, kind of like they were about to do some kind of heist showing up in Singapore in the beginning of 1978. Ben Slater is a film professor in Singapore. He wrote a book called Kinda Hot, The Making of St. Jack in Singapore. None of them on any kind of working visa, all showing up as tourists, 
piling into a very expensive hotel on Orchard Road called the Shangri-La and trying to figure out how they were going to make this film. But there was a big problem. The book, St. Jack, was extremely unpopular with influential people in Singapore. It wasn't officially banned, but the government unofficially hated it. Because they didn't like the idea that they were, in fact, an R&R hub for the kids in Vietnam, for the war in Vietnam, and they'd come over to Singapore for R&R for three, four days. And what did R&R mean? Well, it meant getting laid and getting drunk. And they did that, and so Singapore did not like that image. So Peter came up with a solution. He pretended to be making a different movie. We didn't mention the book. We said we're doing a picture about a guy who wants to be a nightclub owner. It was kind of a cross between pal Joey and love is a many splendid thing. We called it Jack of Hearts, and that's what we were ostensibly doing. We lied, like, just lied. The crew even wore Jack of Hearts T-shirts to fool the authorities. Apparently it worked. That ruse did hold for pretty much most of the shoot, and they were never really confronted on it. We're on the island of Singapore, making a movie here. Singapore's in the South China Sea, right off the coast of Malaya. They call it Malaysia now. Singapore. Peter's the star of his own trailer, narrating directly to a handheld camera as he walks through Singapore at night. This is Boogie Street. In daytime, they sell food here. Peter cast himself in the movie. He plays Eddie Schumann, a fixer for the U.S. Army, probably working for the CIA, who hires Jack Flowers to run an R&R camp for overseas soldiers. Ever since Kennedy and Casper, you can't get a good cigar in America. Peter was inspired by his surroundings. He wanted St. Jack to capture the look and feel of Singapore in the 70s. So he filled the cast with locals who'd never acted before. He was looking for people with really interesting and striking faces, and then he was, you know, getting them to perform as naturally as possible. So long, Bill. What are you sore about? Who said I'm sore? I'm happy. Now I got some money. I buy myself a rich boy. The female lead in St. Jack was a local named Monica Subramaniam. She played Ben Gazzara's girlfriend in the movie. She auditioned for St. Jack on a whim. The choice to cast Monica was great for the movie, not so great for Peter's personal life. After the break, we meet Monica. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Today, Monica Subramaniam lives just outside of Phoenix with her husband. I'm not a breakfast person. She still has prominent cheekbones and a perfect smile. 
A certain self-confidence and spunk has stuck around, too. Forty years ago, she was living in Singapore and working as a travel agent. One day in 1978, a neighbor told her about an open casting call for a movie shooting in the city. When she got there, the place was packed. When it was Monica's turn to audition, she was brought into a room where Peter and Ben Gazzara were waiting. She hadn't heard of either of them. And uh, they said, okay, we are looking to just see your personality, and that's all we are here for. I'm going to give you a scenario. I want you to, you work in a bar. I said, okay. So you work in a bar, a man walks in, and now I want you to seduce him. And and I said, oh, that's easy. I said, <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> I just sat next to Ben, and I sort of said, you know, hello, you know, would you like to buy me a drink? I think something like that. And he said, sure, what would you want to drink? And then I reached over on his chest, and I started unbuttoning his shirt a little bit. And um, so they all both smiled, and then that was it. He said, okay, good job, he says. Monica got called back twice. At the second callback, she got the news. She'd been cast as the female lead in St. Jack, beating out 600 other hopefuls for the role. She didn't have a lot of dialogue, but the money made up for that. $200 a day. That was big-time money, yeah. That's in 1979, yeah, that's big money. You Italian? Yeah, that's right. Italian. Good lover, bad husband. Yeah. Yeah. Monica had never acted before, but that's what Peter wanted. He was looking for authenticity. He even renamed her character Monica. Come here, I've got a present for you. I need a present. Monica. Monica knew how to stick up for herself, and she put that to use in a love scene with Ben Gazzara. God damn it, sorry. The scene required the two of them to kiss. So when we were leaning against the patio door and he re reached over and he grabbed me and he kissed me, so I thought it was just a little lip kiss. So I gave him a lip kiss and he just pushed me back and he said, what do you think, this is a college kiss? He said, that's ridiculous, he said. So then Peter said, Monica, you cannot do that. I said, well, this guy is trying to stick his tongue down. Are you crazy? I said, no. <laughs> So Peter said, Ben, you got to watch it, Ben. You don't be crazy, you know. So I said, no, I'm not kissing for $200, dare you? And then I threw a number, which is going to be an impossible number, thinking that they're going to say no. And I said, a thousand, I'll do it. Thinking that they might say, oh, you know what, forget it. We'll just skip the kissing part. But they did not. They, they went with it. So <laughs> I had no choice. I put the number. <laughs> I have no choice. I think it was three kisses. So I was rich by 3000 <laughs> Monica says the hardest part was learning her lines because she never got the script until the last minute. This was like given to you minutes before because the way it is is because Peter is writing as he goes along. And so was Ben. He helped Peter with the screenplay. Together, they turned Jack Flowers into a character Ben was perfectly suited to play. I'm going to call it Singapore, Lion City, Lion City. Before Ben Gazzara died in 2012, he talked to Turner Classic Movies about St. Jack. We were working constantly together. We were writing the scene we were going to shoot the next day, the very night before. Welcome back, Eddie. Why couldn't you talk to me on the phone? 
You're not that desperate, are you? So it was a great collaboration, and I think there was there was a, a huge amount of bonding going on between the two of them over cigars, whiskey, and women. Everything about the St. Jack production felt spontaneous. The crew had to move quickly. They shot in doorways and alleyways. There were no dressing rooms, no prep areas. They were on the run, staging scenes at the last minute, grabbing shots, then moving on. They were trying to make the film totally under the radar by shooting only in private locations like people's houses, um, hotels, locations that they could control, and then on the streets, which they shot very much guerrilla style. Even though St. Jack was the story of a pimp, the book it was based on didn't have many details about prostitutes. So for dialogue, Peter would go to brothels in the afternoons during off hours and listen to the women speak to each other. According to Ben Gazzara, everything they did was in the service of making the movie. We walked the streets together, Peter and I. We went to all the places my character would have gone to or did go to. We went to the brothels. We cast whores to be the whores. I play a pimp, you see. Peter hired real sex workers to act in the movie. He slept with some of them, too. And he paid them not to have sex with him. He says he paid them to leave the sex trade. I gave him somewhere, I can't remember, it was, but it was somewhere between five and $8,000. To get out of this business? To get out of it, to stop being hookers. Well, it is odd, but, you know, I like women, and it made me sad to see those girls. They were nice people, and I liked them all, you know. I like women, what can I say? There was one girl, Mary Lim. Her working name was Ling Ling, and um, she was so sweet, and she was so frightened. She thought the devils were going to get her or something. And I said, look, I'm going to give you some money. Go back home, will you? She'd had an illegitimate child, and the town turned against her. It was ugly shit. I said, go somewhere where you're loved and liked. And I never heard from her again, but she's in the picture, and she was very good in the picture. Four months into the shoot during their spring break, Peter's daughters came to Singapore to see their father. Antonia and Sashi stayed at the Shangri-La Hotel with their aunt, Peter's sister, Anna. You know, it was the most amazing hotel. I was like, I just had never seen anything like that, you know, of course. And, you know, I remember it was really hot and we swam in the pool. You know, a lot of the stuff that he was shooting was kind of, you know, risque, I guess, is why we didn't go to the set that much. But their visit wasn't without adventure. Ben Gazzara, like a mischievous uncle, let Antonia smoke a cigar. Ben always smoked cigars. Benny, my dad called him. I wasn't even close to being a teenager, but I was like, I wanted to try the cigar. And my dad smoked cigars too. So I took a couple of puffs of Benny's cigar and I got so sick. <laughs> I didn't even inhale, but I got sick. Don't get the wrong impression. According to Sashi, this was all supervised by Peter himself. I mean, my dad was there. So, you know, they were all smoking cigars and Antonia and I smoked a cigar and then proceeded to completely throw up all night. So <laughs> there was definitely joints going around too, but he didn't let us smoke those. But we could pass them. <laughs> Throughout those months in Singapore, Peter felt liberated, a world away from Hollywood and all of the criticism. Without studio executives hovering, he was free creatively. He was also away from Sybil. 
In the beginning, Peter and Monica just flirted. I think we we were both drawn to each other. He was a attractive young man at that time, and I I didn't look bad myself at that time. So <laughs> two attractive people from two different worlds were attracted. Monica was 21 at the time and had a boyfriend. Peter was 38 and in a long-term relationship with Sybil. Monica says nothing happened between them for a while, but then things changed. One day, Peter says to the crew, oh, the weather is not good. We're going to cancel it for a couple of days and we'll reshoot again, blah, blah, blah. So I was happy and I was ready to go home to my boyfriend saying that now i got no no job for a couple of days. I can spend some time, quality time with my boyfriend. I rushed back home early at lunch to hopefully, you know, be there at his place. And then I found him with another woman. So I was upset. I'm like, damn fool. That's what it got me going with Peter. Peter and Monica tried to be discreet, but Sybil visited Peter in Singapore. She figured it out. And I remember she looked like she'd been crying all night and she left. I couldn't do anything about it at that point. You know, I couldn't drop Monica. We never discussed it. Peter's six months in Singapore marked the end of his eight-year relationship with Sybil. They broke up, and when Sybil got back to L.A., she packed up and moved home to Memphis. Shooting on St. Jack wrapped, and Peter flew back to L.A. to begin editing the movie. I knew this relationship or this this friendship is not going to last. Something told me that it's not going to last. Just enjoy while you got it and just and just move on with life. But Peter didn't move on. He was lonely back in L.A. with Sybil gone, so he called Monica. He was very, very, very down. He called me in Singapore. He said, Ranji, that's what he calls me. Ranji, what are you doing? Can you come to the States? I need you here. When Monica got to Los Angeles, Peter already had a house guest, his mother, Herma. Oh, she's a lovely lady, lovely. I was staying in a hotel when I was in L.A., and she says to her son, that's ridiculous. You put her, you bring her to L.A., and you put her up in a hotel. Your girlfriend just dumped you, and you worry about what your girlfriend is going to think, you know? You know, he said, no, I don't want Sybil to be upset, you know? He said, because he was so much in love with Sybil. And uh, his mom says, no, you bring her here to this house right now. Herma was still living in Arizona, but she visited L.A. often to see Peter and her granddaughters. She would spend her mornings with Sashi. I woke up early, like her, and so she would make me tea every morning with her. It was just my time with her. She, to me, was always this pure thing who is just going to love me. Herma's travel slowed down late in 1978 after she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Peter would charter a plane and take his daughters to see her after she was too sick to travel. Herma Bogdanovich died of cervical cancer early in 1979. Peter was at her side with his sister and his daughters. Polly was there, too. She had remained close to Herma. In 1997, Peter published a book called Who the Devil Made It? Conversations with Legendary Film Directors. He dedicated the book to his parents and wrote, 
to the memory of my brave, dear, and inspiring mother, an overly selfless person, and also my first director, first editor, first friend. Eventually, Monica left Los Angeles and used some of her money from St. Jack to travel the world. Her relationship with Peter fizzled out. It's tough to stay with the same girl if you're not in love with her. I wasn't in love with her, but I liked her a lot. Monica still keeps in touch with Peter. In fact, before she agreed to our interview, she called him and asked if he thought it was a good idea. I am one of the fortunate and lucky Singaporean girl that got an opportunity to experience this, and I don't regret a single day and single minute of that time. Peter and Sybil Shepard have remained close, too, and Sybil says Peter wasn't the only one who cheated. She also had an affair with Elvis. It was on Sunset Strip. Elvis was playing Las Vegas. So Peter knew I cheated on him. He, was, he wasn't mad? He might have been a little mad. But he got past it, because it's Elvis. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. Elvis was the king. Sybil says the thing that really ended her relationship with Peter was her desire to have kids. It's funny how you get to a certain age as a woman, for some women, not all women, and, you know, you just kind of want to have a family, and I fell in love with a Memphis man. And I said, what, is he a mechanic? That was my remark, and she said, yeah, matter of fact, he is. <laughs> Sybil married the mechanic and had a daughter. The marriage didn't last. She married a second time and had two more children, but later divorced. Sybil still has paintings by Borislav Bogdanovich, Peter's father, hanging on her walls, and she bought the same kind of piano that Peter's mother, Herma, liked to play. So I couldn't help but wonder, sitting across from Peter, why did he blow up his relationship with Sybil to have an affair with a woman who, by his own admission, he didn't love? Well, Ben, it's very tough. To It's an occupational hazard. Truffaut wrote about it. Francois Truffaut was a director and film critic who was one of the leading lights of the French New Wave. Truffaut was known for having affairs with his leading ladies. You have this attractive woman who's depending upon you to help her get her performance because she's never acted before. Or even if they have acted, you, you know, you're still the director. And so you're, you're sort of creating a character. And you're attracted to that because you're, you're creating it. No, don't say that, say this. You know. Don't look over there, look over here. You're directing it, particularly people who have never acted before. That is the most artful explanation of one of the oldest cliches in Hollywood. Older director falls for young ingenue. Some might call it narcissistic. I don't even think Peter would disagree with that characterization. The world in 2019-2020 looks differently on the power dynamics of relationships. Yeah, it's true. Do you look back on your own actions any differently now? No, not really. I, I don't think I took advantage of anybody. I don't think I was a prick. 
I, I, I was nice to the women I had a relationship with. Um, I have enough regrets about things. I, I don't really feel like I did anything wrong. The girls knew they were in for a short ride or, or whatever had happened. It wasn't like I had people falling in love with me and I was jilting them or something like that. It was this, you know, sex was more casual in those days, I think, than it is now. This mindset, a kind of 70s-era casual approach to sex and relationships, was evident throughout St. Jack. Hey, people make love for so many crazy reasons. Why shouldn't money be one of them? St. Jack was released in April 1979. The reviews started to come in from overseas, and they were good. My position in Europe was completely altered by St. Jack. I think they thought of him as a pretty good director or whatever. I remember a French magazine called Positif did a piece about me after St. Jack, and the headline was Bogdanovich, The Misunderstood. The film broke Peter's losing streak, and it won the Critics' Prize at the Venice Film Festival. In the U.S., the reaction was more mixed, but mostly positive. Siskel and Ebert both raved, with Ebert naming it one of the year's ten best. And my favorite overlooked movie of 1979 was St. Jack. St. Jack is one of the sleepers of 1979, a movie I think people are going to rediscover one of these years with a lot of admiration and pleasure. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a good film. I think history will bear you out. It'll be a film that people will see for a long time. What's important about St. Jack is that he, I felt that he had finally found his own style. Film critic Todd McCarthy started writing for Variety in 1979, the year St. Jack was released. St. Jack introduced a new style and a new feel in Peter's work, as far as I'm concerned. He did the long takes, he did the wonderful camera moves, but they were all discreet. The camera was exactly where it needed to be at every moment to maximize the effect of the scenes. And so there's a fluidity and an ease and a confidence. Polly Platt, Peter's ex-wife, was surprised by St. Jack. I loved it, she told a biographer years later even though I thought it was frightening in its sexuality. Peter has always been prudish, sheltered, didn't drink, didn't do dope. And what was this? Hey, honey, what are you drinking? Good evening, gentlemen. Hot chocolate, chocolate, sonny. Welcome to Singapore. Years later, Ben Gazzara said working on St. Jack was one of the most creative experiences he'd ever had. Some parts stayed with you longer, much longer than other ones, and Jack stayed with me until this day. I love the memory of that whole experience. I love Peter. He's such a talented, talented man. Misunderstood in the business. Generous, terrific guy. And a wonderful director. Of course, even when the reviews were good, the press was still happy to knock Peter down a few notches. A headline in the Detroit Free Press read, Sybil may not love him, but at least the critics do. St. Jack has now found a cult following. It's a movie that's not just authentic to Singapore, it's authentic to Peter Bogdanovich. It's a movie where he didn't compromise. He used real locations, good actors, long takes, and he avoided cliches. As a point of comparison, Crazy Rich Asians, which was released two years ago now, which is a film shot in this part of the world and at least set mostly in Singapore, is a film that was very controversial here 
and considered to be really offensive in its portrayal of multiracial Singapore. And a lot of young people watching St. Jack, their first thing is, wow, this is much more real and authentic than Crazy Rich Asians. So that's a pretty great testament to a film that was made in 1978. Even with the success of St. Jack, 1979 was a tough year for Peter. He lost Sybil, he lost his mother, he and Orson weren't talking. For the first time in his adult life, he was living alone, and he was lonely. So Peter ventured into the playground that defined sex in the 1970s, the Playboy Mansion. I wasn't a big fan of it, but... I could go over there occasionally. I'd have something to eat or hang out with Heffer briefly. So we'd play in Monopoly sometimes. You'd go to the Playboy Mansion and play Monopoly? Yeah. Maybe two, three times I did that. And um, significantly, I, he had a special issue of the Monopoly board, and the, the tokens were different than, you, than the, the, the ones they use in the regular ones. And one of them was a Playboy bunny. And I always chose the Playboy Bunny as my token, you know. One evening in 1978, Peter, who was 39 years old, was leaving the mansion when he saw Dorothy Stratton for the first time. She was 18 and had just moved to L.A. to work for Playboy. As he was being introduced to her, he had one thought. I thought, this is the most beautiful girl I have ever seen, was the first thing that crossed my mind. So I did the oldest, come on in the, you know, pass in the, in the world. I said, I'm casting a picture, here's my phone number. <laughs> she never called. They wouldn't meet again for almost a year. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Peter finds the love of his life. He's on his way up, again, and again, an epic fall. But this time, there's no recovering. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music, mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yaakov Friedman, Susanna Zapeta, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Geltzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie DeCherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish, the only other TCM staffer to watch presidential polling numbers more often than movies. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.